let's get into origins. Why am I the way I am? Maybe more importantly, why do I do the things I do? One of the most comforting verses in all the Bible for many of us is when the Apostle Paul, this spiritual titan who wrote most of the New Testament, a man that actually met the risen Jesus. You would think if anybody was going to have it together, it would be the guy that met the risen Jesus. It changed his life a lot, but at one point Paul goes, just like we do, an underlying question, he goes, I don't understand why I do what I do. He wrote to the Romans, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Why do we do what we do? I mean, can we stop? Can we change? How? And so welcome to this series of talks called Origins, a look at our shared genealogy, our one big dysfunctional biblical family, if you will. And so here's where we are. We've discovered why so many times in life, at one point or another, we all come to a shared conclusion that things should not be the way they are. Something is not right. All the death and the pain and the hurt. My friend Wayne this morning, he teaches up in children's ministry every week. Wayne came and said, did you hear about the train accident this morning? Could you ask folks to pray for the victims of the Amtrak uh, accident? The reason that we feel this way is that deep in our core, deep in our core, we were meant for something else. What we've really learned is deep in our core, we were meant for someplace else. You see, we were created for what the Bible calls this concept of shalom, this, for lack of better ways of explaining it, this four-part harmonious interconnectedness of love and purpose and tranquility and peace and prosperity between ourselves, right? We're not double-minded people, but shalom, peace, peace, interconnectedness with others, with God, and with creation. But we live, if you're honest, we live something quite different. Now, the ancient stories we've been looking at show that, that the Creator gave us a choice, a choice required by the very definition of love, to live perpetually and eternally. You were created to live eternally in this four-part state of shalom, which was provided by permitted by and undergirded by us creations allowing the creator to define what is good and evil, right and wrong. That's what permitted this to exist. We had, we were created to have full, we just sung about this, you are good, you are good, right? We were created to put our full faith and trust in the goodness and the rightness of God, to choose him to be God, but we made a choice, a choice that we continue to make, I make it all the time, to, to decide for ourselves to be God and to begin to put faith not in, our, uh, not in God, but in ourselves. And this eternal enemy we saw came along and tricked us. He duped us with a simple question. You know, did God really say, you know, you could be like God? And we bit, man, we were duped. We thought we knew better. See, I still think I knew better know better. We thought we knew better. We thought we could do better. Oh, you know, God, he's just so old-fashioned. He's, he's so restrictive. He's trying to hold back on us. He's trying to hold out on us. And so, you know, we'll just take it from here. We'll decide. And so our forebearers did what we do every day. They decided to try to be like God and put their faith in themselves, and they, they decided that they had a better ability to determine right and wrong, good and evil. And here's what we've learned so far, okay? 
we really stink. And stink is not a good enough word there, but this is church. But you can think of a better word. We really stink. Humanity is terrible at determining good and evil, right and wrong. Just a quick glance of our shared history would prove that point. Now, we've looked at over these weeks the unraveling of this shalom, the migration east of Eden, the slipping away of life. In fact, last week we saw how bad things had gotten, how broken God's heart was, how he, he feared the potential of what could happen if man continued in this state. And so there was this, this reboot of humanity, known in every culture that's existed as a worldwide flood. But we saw, again, just like we did in the Cain and Abel story, that the enemy, it turns out, was not outside of the ark. The enemy was actually inside of the ark. It was in some of Noah's sons. It was in Noah. It was in some of his sons. It's in you and me. And so back to the story, it's a familiar one. You know it. The, the boat, it docks. Noah, his sons, their wives, the animals, they all climb off. It's a, it's a worldwide reboot, a new chance. And here, I don't know if you know this, do you know God gave them the same command, Noah and his wives, uh, sons and wives, he gave them the exact same command that he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. In chapter 1, he said it to Adam and Eve. In chapter 9, he says this, God blessed Noah and said, God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fully fill the earth. We've heard this before, right? It's a reboot. Go, God says. It's a giant go. Restart, repopulate. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Things could be the way they were meant to be. Go. But the problem wasn't inside of the ark or outside of the ark. The problem was inside of the ark. The problem's inside of you and me. And so Noah's sons, they begin about 100 years or so goes by, maybe up to 150. His be children begin to have children and, and populate. And the story picks up here with an interesting detail. It says, at one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. It's an important detail, right? There are, at this time, no nations yet, no countries, no boundaries. They are one people. And scripture says, as they migrated to the east, they continued to move east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. Settled there. They stopped right there. See, they were supposed to go, but they stayed in direct violation of what God had commanded them to do because, you know what? Oh, you know, God doesn't really know what he's talking about. And this is a nice plane here. I think we'll stay right here. He's so restrictive. In fact, here's what they said. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And you might say, well, that's strange. Why would they include that? Here's why. Because this was a brand new technology. This was groundbreaking, folks. This was history-defying. This was a technological breakthrough called bricks and mortar. It was the sliced bread of the day. It was the internet of their time. No longer do you need to search for, dig out, remove, hone, cut, transport rocks. Oh, that's so first century, right? That's so B.C., no, 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 here's what we're going to do. God has given us the ability to make some... Well, actually, they didn't say God has given us the ability. Their thing was, we have the ability 
to make out of brick and tar whatever we want. What an achievement. What is possible for us now? We've got bricks. I mean, these are game changers for them. It gives them a new sense of power. It gives them a new sense of independence. We build what we want, when we want, where we want. And then, so then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered all over the face of the earth. I mean, why go? We could stay. We've got bricks now. The scripture says, the Lord sees all this, and but the Lord came down. It's just like in the Garden of Eden, right? It's the same story. Remember I told you in Genesis, it's just a continued story. It's one story. It just keeps going on, going on, going on. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, nothing they plan to do is going to be impossible for them. So come, let us, there's the Trinity again, quickly, early in Genesis, years before there was a full understanding of this, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Guys, understand this. Just as cutting us off from the tree of life was merciful, death in a sense was merciful, the lack of eternal life became merciful to keep us from existing eternally in this fallen creation, in this falling state, in the unending pain. It was the mercy of God at work here preventing the rapid progression of evil when we all spoke the same language, when we all thought the same way, there was this rapid progression of evil. God confuses it. God stops it. God separates us. You know, I couldn't help but think about the internet. I love the internet. Man, I love me some Facebook, right? And there's a lot of cool stuff on the internet. I'll tell you right now, it makes writing, like doing research on sermons, a lot easier. But you, you and I also know the internet carries with it. You know, there's one common language. It really does have the opportunity to quickly spread around a lot of bad stuff. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. And they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because that's where the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you've been with us over these few weeks, here's what we're learning together. That oftentimes in these stories, they're not as simple as they seem. There's a deeper meaning in the context of the story that we need to understand. Because God, the writer, trying to get across what God so desperately wants his sons and daughters to know, you have to understand contextually what's happening. So with that in mind, let me start with this question this morning. Have you ever wondered who built Babel? Whose idea was this? Who was responsible for it? It's actually found out and pointed out in the chapter before. We never talk about it, but let me show it to you because it's quite fascinating. The chapter before talks about the the sons of Noah. Remember we, we talked about them last week? Okay, so here's what it says about the genealogy coming from Noah. Cush, okay, Cush is a name. Remember Noah's son Ham? We talked about him last week with that kind of rated R story about Ham and what was going on in the Noah, in Noah's tent and all the rest. Okay, Noah had a son named Ham. Ham had a son named Cush. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty warrior before the Lord. So this morning, what I want to teach you is lessons from a Nimrod. 
Now, you probably are saying, every week I show up here and I get lessons from a Nimrod. Why would this Sunday be any different than any other Sunday? And here, see, you shouldn't laugh that hard at it, because now I don't feel as good. I thought it would be a passing laugh. See, here's why. Do, do you know Nimrod used to not be thought of the way it currently is for thousands of years, up until about 60, 70 years ago. When somebody heard the name Nimrod, they thought it was synonymous with mighty warrior, mighty hunter. Do, now, Nimrod, over the last couple of decades, has taken on a new meaning. It's kind of like you're a, you're a Nimrod, you're a klutz-like buffoon. Does anybody know who changed, what cultural icon changed the meaning of the biblical term Nimrod? Does anybody know? Bugs Bunny. I don't know who said that, but they are 100% right. Bugs Bunny changed biblical meaning. All right? Nimrod used to mean mighty warrior, mighty hunter. And so what happened is Bugs Bunny started to call this mighty hunter, anybody remember his name? Elmer Fudd, Nimrod. And for all the decades since, it's taken on a grand new meaning. Now, Nimrod, the Bible says, was called a mighty hunter before the Lord, which sounds complimentary, but here's what scholars would tell you. Terminology means something quite different. The name Nimrod, the Hebrew root word of Nimrod, is not mighty warrior, it's rebel. And the preposition before the Lord really marks separation more than anything else. It's better understood if you translate hunter as plunderer or conqueror. Then the parts of Nimrod start to come together. Nimrod is this conqueror of might before God. He's animated by this spirit, and he puts it to work. Or excuse me, he puts into his work and, and all of this and does all of this conquering, plundering, empire building outside the presence of God. Nimrod becomes kind of this great warrior building cities, tearing down other ones outside of the will of God. He's the great builder of cities, and he's the great plunderer. In fact, the next verse says this. The first centers of his kingdom, the first cities he built were Babylon. Babel. Okay, so he built Babylon. He built this tower of Babel. He was responsible for getting everybody fired up. And you see there's a whole lot of lists of other cities here, including Nineveh. That gets picked up later in the story of Jonah. Now, it's interesting. If you remember, when God cursed Cain for what he had done to Abel, he sends him out, but he, he sends him out with this mark of mercy on his, well, we don't know where, but he sends him out with his mark of mercy so that no one will harm him. But Cain... Even then, he has the option, again, to trust in the mark of God, but he doesn't. So the Bible says that he comes to a land called Nod. Nod means, translates, wanderings. Cain comes to a land of wanderings, but he sets about to make his own life. He's going to secure himself. He's going to escape from wandering, and he builds, listen, this is important, Cain builds the first city, and he names it after his son Enoch, which means initiation. And so Cain is initiating this new way of city life, a new way of security, a new way for rootedness outside of God. No longer do I need God for protection. I have the city for protection. And then the flood happens. And what does Nimrod, this mighty warrior, do post-flood? Sets about building cities. So here's my question to you this morning. It's a very deep question. I've been thinking about it all week. 
Are you a city builder too? Maybe you're more of a tower builder. Maybe you're like me, as you've reflected on it all week, man, I am a sickening mixture, a toxic mixture of both of them. I love to build cities and towers. Something deep in me so wants to spend my life building towers to myself, for myself, hemming myself in, into a city, securing myself. The people were told by God to go, and, and, and they stayed. Why? Well, here's what the scripture says they were trying to do. It lists four things. It said that they wanted to build a city. They wanted to build a tower to heaven. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they wanted not to be scattered. And these four things actually just relate to two issues. They were going to build a city so that they didn't have to be scattered, and they were going to build a tower to heaven so that they could make a name for themselves cities and towers. I don't know which one I struggle with more. I have a deep desire to build both of them. And it's rooted in a lack of trust in God. It's rooted in a desire to be like God. It's rooted in a desire to be my own God. I love towers. Huge tower guy. Big on towers. Born and bred tower builder. Huge amounts of time constructing, worrying, taking care of my tower. I just, I desperately want a tower so bad. I desperately Desperately want to make a name for myself. Now, this is not just limited to antiquity, I want you to know. Men forever have been trying to build towers to the heavens to make names for themselves. Let me show you what I mean, because you're going to see. This happens all the time. Anybody know what his name is? Eiffel, right? Where's that tower going? To the heavens. Now, even oh, well, that's a couple hundred years ago. We wouldn't do anything like that anymore. Oh, really? How about this? No political statement here, okay? There's no political statement here. Because there's 8 million other ones. There's the Chrysler Tower. We can go on and on and on. Of course, it helps when you put your name on it to really make sure everybody knows. But, but this is what we do. We build towers so that everybody looks and goes, you know, you really are the man. I build them all the time. Not so much out of brick and mortar. Because I'm not that smart and I'm not that wealthy. But I build them best I can. I build them, I mean, I build them out of achievements. I build them out of accomplishments. And see, I can make anything a tower. I build them out of possessions, career. I build them out of ministry, cars, cash, jewelry. This week, you know what I discovered I was studying this? Half my time I was also studying how to build abs at 50 years old. <laughs> swear to God. I, can I swear to God in church? Uh, but I'm, I'm going to myself. You're building a tower of abs. Like, for what purpose? My abs are fine now. But no. No, I'm not going to build a tower. Right? I build them all the time. You know, you think about it, right? I go back in my life, and I'm just such a mess. Oh, honey, 25th high school reunion coming up. Well. <laughs> Don't applaud that. 35th high school reunion coming up. You know, could you put something on a little nicer? Because I can build a tower out of my spouse. Look at me. Look who I have on my arm. Remember, Lamech did that last week. I do it all the time. Do it with my spouse. I do it with my kids. Ah, oh, this is so disgusting. Can I tell you how disgusting I am? I probably shouldn't, but I have to just tell you, because it was going through my mind as I was building towers this week, and the Lord was teaching me. I'm driving with my daughter, Caroline, who's the hardest working kid you'd ever want to meet in your life. Works like a dog at everything, okay? And so she's been learning how to hurt. 
who's been working like crazy at it. And she just started really trying to run this one race a few weeks ago. And uh, all of a sudden, she started getting really crazy good. And so our coaches come on up to me going, you know, your daughter is getting really good at this. Like, you should drop her out of other events and just have her do this. And I said, me? My daughter? Really? And uh, so I was driving, uh, driving to school with Carrie the other day, and I said, Carrie, do you know what the records are at high school for, for the hurdles? Do you know what they are? And she's like, well, no. Like, why don't you check into it? Because, you know, if you think about it, if you got every record, you would be the greatest hurdler in the history of Westmar Central High School. You build that tower, girl, right? And so um, this week she, she had uh, district championships down at Tom, Tom's River. Now I need to back up. Some of you are familiar with the fact I ran a little track back in my day. And so uh, when I was in the county championships back in my day, I was first seed and I was building a tower, a big old tower. It was, it was a good looking tower. And so uh, the county championships were at my high school. I was number one seed. I had all my friends come. I had all my relatives come. My grandfather came to the one and only athletic event he ever went to. And I was winning it until I got to the last hurdle right in front of the homestand. And I took a, a face plant to, to end all face plants. And I thought to myself, my tower. Fast forward to this Friday. After I had given her my poor, angelic, hardworking little girl all this talk about how she was going to build a tower, she took off in her 55-meter race, and on the second hurdle, she clipped her trail leg, which caused her to lose a little bit of time. She didn't face plant like her father, because she's a winner, right? She kept going, but she didn't post the time that she thought she could have, and I thought she could have, and almost at the same time, you know what you could hear Caroline and I both scream? My tower! So I build, I'll build towers out of anything. See, for tower builders like me, it doesn't ha matter how high my tower actually is. My tower doesn't need to go all the way to the heavens. My tower only needs to be bigger than yours. So does my house, and my TV, my car, my bank account. See, it doesn't matter how fast my kid is. She only needs to be faster than yours. It's funny, but it's sick. It doesn't matter how pretty my wife is. She just needs to be prettier than yours. And see, this is why tower builders, we can wind up spending more time tearing down other people's towers than building our own. Tower people's marriages unwind for the same reason that tower building nations go to war. At the heart is this deep-seated, twisted need for personal glory. Why do I have this insatiable need for you to think a certain way about me? It's because I want to be like God. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Why do I build towers? Why do you spend all your life building towers? Because you want to be like God. The glory he's due deserves and frankly needs so that men see him and know him and follow him. I want so bad for them to see me and know me and follow me. But my glory, the building of my kingdom is not helping anyone the glorifying of me above God, building my kingdom above his, winds up with people in hell. 
my kingdom doesn't have the ability to save anyone out of the mess we find ourselves in, let alone me. See, if you remember from week one, we talked about purpose. Our purpose was to be an image bearer of God, a glory reflector, if you will, not a glory manufacturer. I read a great quote this week. You know why I knew it was great? Because it really offended my flesh. Maybe it will yours too. It was by Nicholas Zinzendorf. He argued about the mission of being a Christian versus the ambition of the world by saying, get ready, ready, ready to feel your flesh? He said, here's what, what we, especially ministers of the gospel, should be doing. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. My tower. The scripture says, by his grace alone, if you will allow him to be God for all eternity, you will share in his glory. If you want to feel what it felt like in Eden for just a moment, just step back and don't feel the need to build a tower. Now, maybe you're a city builder. You know, that's not relegated to antiquity either. Just this week, I came across this headline. Check this out. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he announced his plans to build a new city on the Red Sea coast, promising, quote, check this out, it's going to be a lifestyle not available in today's Saudi Arabia, as he seeks to remake the kingdom in a time of dwindling resources. I'm going to bring them all in here so I have them. The prince said that the city will operate independently. Independently, we won't need to plan any of this. See, why go? When we can stay. There's danger out there. But in here, we got walls and boats, guard towers and guns. City builders will do anything to protect what they have, to be independent. No reliance on anybody, anything, anywhere. We go out there to hunt and we bring it in here to keep it safe. City builders trust walls and guns and money and 401ks and pensions for protection. And if we're honest, I mean, sometimes they just feel so much more trustworthy than God. But you see, if you are a city builder, you will feel the need at this deep, heartfelt level to take care of number one because you will think you can't trust anybody else to help you. City builders are control freaks. City builders are worry words. City builders, in their own desperate search for security and not relying on anyone else or God, they build up over time huge levels of fear and worry and anxiety. The walls got to be bigger. The guns got to be stronger. Babel goes on to become this biblical city known as Babylonia or Babylon. Babylon took city building to a new level. Surviving a series of conflicts, it became the most magnificent city in the world. There's a historian, Herodotus, that said the city was surrounded by a wall, listen to this, 350 feet high. The wall was 87 feet thick. It was wide enough for six chariots to drive abreast. Around the top, there were 250 watchtowers. Outside was a huge moat surrounding the city filled with water from the Euphrates. 
The cost of constructing this military defense was estimated at the time to be in excess of $1 billion. Building cities, man, building cities costs. They have a cost. I mean, sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's love. Sometimes it's relationships. I mean, some of us build walls around everything, right? Like some of us build walls around, what do I love more than anything else? What do you love more than anything else? My kids. Yeah, yeah, we bring them up here and we dedicate them on a Sunday morning to the Lord, but we didn't really mean it. Because we really don't trust the Lord with them. I can't sleep at night. I'm so worried about my kid. I got to figure out a way to hem them in, hold them back. Some of us build walls around our hearts. Maybe your heart got so wounded at some point in some relationship. And so you can't give it again. You can't let it go. You can't let it be broken again. So you guard it so fully. You'll never give it to another, let alone to the God that wants it and created it. We spend so much time building towers so we don't get hurt. We spend so much time building building towers so we can glorify ourselves. When the scripture says this one brilliant thing, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. When I got home the other night, Karen and I drove home from the track meet. I'd already messed her up with my whole theory of tower building. Sat down in front of the TV, it was 11 o'clock, it was late, flipped on the news. Thought, well, at least I have my 401k. Anybody see what happened in the market on Friday? Pulled out the old laptop. <sighs> my city! The walls came down. See, Jesus told a story about towers and walls and cities. He said, there was a rich man that had a fertile farm and it produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend... You have enough stored away for years to come. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You built yourself a good old city, boy. Nice thick walls on this one. But God said to him, you fool. You're going to die this very night. Who's going to get everything you worked for? Your city. Jesus' conclusion is just so brilliant. He concludes, he goes... Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth to build cities here, but not have a rich relationship of trust and faith with God. Are you tired of building cities and towers that crumble? I mean, do you want to know how to overcome all the anxiety and the fear and the cultural pressure for your kids to be perfect, your house to be perfect, your job to be impressive? It is the same answer I'm giving you week after week in this series. I wish I could give it to you and make it more complex, but it's this. Faith and trust, it is the way we reverse the curse. I don't mean intellectual accedence to a, a historical truth. I don't believe, mean just believing in the historical veracity of Jesus. I mean full-out abandonment to Christ, to trust, to believe, to have faith, to let him define who you are, to let him once again define good, evil, right, wrong. Isaiah saw it when he was prophesying to God's people. He said this, listen to Isaiah, this is so brilliant. 
He said, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, not themselves, all whose thoughts are fixed, their thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord. Always, for the Lord God's the eternal rock. He humbles the proud, listen to this, how good is this? And he brings down the arrogant city. He brings it down to dust. Guys, our, our arrogant cities, uh, our greatest towers, they're all coming down. You know your high school record is going to fall. Your kids are going to grow up and leave. The markets are going to crash. The layoffs are going to come. Eventually a call about a prognosis not being good will reach your home. Your looks will fade. Will you? Can you trust God to be your God? I have the band come up. I want to close with this. I want, I, I want to look ahead to next week. Here's what I want to conclude with. Church, if you remember nothing from this, here's what I want you to go home. You can tell your friends. This is what I learned at church today. Don't be a Nimrod. Don't be a Nimrod. Stop building cities and building towers. Here's the cure. Here's your peace. You know, I showed you so far that according to the writer of the New Testament book, Hebrews, people were asking him, well, before Jesus, how were people saved? Like, how did they go to heaven? They couldn't put their faith in Christ. Like, how did this happen? And here's what he wrote. He said, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed. That's kind of Genesis 1 and 2. And then he said, it, it was by faith that Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then he said, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, built an ark to save his family. And check this out. This is so good. Next week, we're going to pick up our story with Abraham, who was too... Anybody know God comes to Abraham and he tells him, Abraham, I don't want you to stay. I want you to go. This is the story of Abraham. It's our story. I don't want you to stay here and build a city. I want you to go. Trust me. What allows Abraham to go and not stay? Here's what the writer said. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. And listen to this. What did he see? What do you and I need to see? Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations. A city designed and built not by John, but by God. Father, would you give us the same confidence that Abraham had, Lord, that we too might live, invest in, believe in, hope in, live for, and deeply trust that there is for us a city with eternal foundations, not one we've worked on, not one we've strived to make, but a city designed and built by God. In Jesus' great name.